Welcome to the Yahoo Finance Presents podcast. I'm Alexis Christophorus. BlackRock CEO Larry Fink makes the case for why he thinks the markets will be higher in 10 years. At Yahoo Finance's All Market Summit, Fink told our editor-in-chief Andy Serwer that millennials expect more out of companies than older generations. He also discusses challenges facing CEOs and corporations and stresses the importance of socially responsible investing. Here's their conversation. Moving back to the conversation, what about the stock market? The stock market has been on that historic run, and I just wonder where things go from here, because a lot of people think that the end is near in terms of uh, equity prices. Well, I don't, markets are going to be higher in 10 years. So I, I'm, I'm not really concerned about whether we are going to see a, a setback. <clears throat> As you said, the markets have rallied since 2009. If you look at the markets today, and I'm speaking specifically the U.S. markets, we've seen a huge increase in corporate earnings on the back of big tax cuts, on the back of a rising economy. And so actually, EPS is lower today than it was a year ago. So the marketplace is now discounting some of the, those worries. Now, some people may think they're, they're not discounting enough, but with PEs down, you could safely say the market is less expensive or more, or more cheap. But, um, and, and so that's part one. Part two, there is a decoupling, though, between our markets and the rest of the world. And, and two, if you strip out some of the real high-flying um, technology stocks, many companies' stocks are down in the year. BlackRock's down from after a big run last year. And so... I, it is, the marketplace is pretty uneven. It's not as strong as it feels. PEs are down. But the fundamental part of your question, can this continue? I would say in the short run, yes. In the short run, it will continue. I don't think that's a good answer for long-termism. But I do believe over a long horizon, markets are going to be higher. I just want to remind everybody, if you bought <clears throat> equities two days before the failure of Lehman Brothers... Portfolios up. So all those people who panicked around that period of time, that was a bad move if you have a long-term view. So even before that <clears throat> decline, You bought two days before right. Lehman Brothers' failure. Right. You, have, you're, you're, you, you did better than, you know, I think it's up 130%. Right, right. Um, Larry, you just got back from Europe. Um, we're talking to some leaders there. What is your take on what's going on there? Was there a takeaway or two? <clears throat> Europe is less strong this year than it was last year. I, I think the big surprise in 2017 was how strong Europe was. <clears throat> People felt confidence politically. Europe was in a better place with the Macron election. <clears throat> In 2018, you've had changes of government in Spain and Italy, uh, more extreme governments, more populist governments. <clears throat> you have um, a destabilizing government in Germany. Uh, the Ch uh, Chancellor Merkel has uh, un been undergoing you know, real shifts in, in the power struggle there. There's an important election there in October, and it, you know, it appears that her party is probably going to lose a major important state of Germany. 
Um, and so you have polit more political uncertainty in Europe. You have still an unresolved Brexit. You have a weakening economy from the highs of 2017. Um, and so Europe, and, and they're facing threats of trade wars with the United States. So, um, but overall, I think Europe is okay. It's not, it's much stronger than it was five years ago. Um, the fundamental problem of Europe is looking back, Europe did not aggressively address the financial crisis as firmly as the United States did. Their banking crisis lasted six, seven years longer than the US. And so the, the banking system today, in most cases, is pretty strong. There's parts of Europe where we could, we still could attack some of parts of their banking system. But overall, Europe's okay. Um, is the euro gonna hold together? the European Union? I heard from two political leaders, and it was in Germany and France, um, that they believe the threat of a trade war with Europe, <clears throat> the differences between the United States and Europe related to NATO, the issues around Russia, the threats of migrants from the South, is actually creating, um, I would say, a greater resolve with France and Germany. So I would say today, there's probably a greater, there's greater strength in the future of the Euro than, than what we may have thought five years ago. Let's talk about the trade war, specifically China, Larry. Um, how much does that concern you? How do you see it playing out? Where do we go from here? Well, in the short run, the United States is a big winner. In the trade war? We're, we're, you know, if you look at just what is being proposed in NAFTA in the short run, it looks like it's beneficial for the United States. What is being negotiated with Canada in the short run, it looks good. What has been all the actions with China in the short run, it, it, it's good for Europe. What I'm worried about is the long term. And in my meetings with Europeans, earlier my meetings with leaders and business leaders in Asia, the greatest problem that I see is, and this is not, this is what I'm hearing from our clients, is this unilateralism that the United States has been taking. This, you know, we. The foundations of finance, of globalization, has been multilateralism. And the question is, in the long run, where I said in the short run, the, you know, the US is winning. In the long run, does it change relationships? Does it change its allies? Does it change the course of how we resolve problems? We, we, we are seeing more extreme problems in Argentina, in Turkey, where you know no one cares for the political leadership right now, and yet the economy was actually doing well, and now there's great instability and economic instability in Turkey. And on top of that, we impose more tariffs, <clears throat> which makes it harder for any multilateralism to try to stabilize Turkey. So my greatest long-term fear is we don't have we don't have the the connections we you know the world is probably less economically safe and 
when you have those issues, and I think one of the great foundations of the world and as global investors, we always felt secure that this multilateralism would, would stabilize the world and now that multilateralism is breaking down. Populism is rising, <clears throat> focusing on individual needs of a country. And those issues could, and I'm not saying will, could create more volatility and could present greater problems. And then in the long run, does, it, does the US behaviors impair um, the world vitality? And so, you know, in the short run, it looks great for the US and the US stock market is rallying, the rest of the world's markets are not. Does that become a tipping point? And, you know, and that was a concern I heard from most CEOs. I heard that from some governmental leaders. And then the great, the great issues that so many CEOs spoke to me, which was pretty revealing to me, and I, I don't want to, and these were what I heard consistently that some of the behaviors of the United States is leading more and more non-US companies to pivot more towards China. So obviously in the short run, the tensions between the US and China, I do believe the US is winning in the short run, but does it change the equilibrium in the world? Does it move the world more towards um, two huge leaders? Could it ever lead, and this is what I heard very loud, and this is probably the most disturbing thing I heard, could it lead to a desire to have another major currency as a currency of choice? That would change what, how, what we think about equilibrium as from a US perspective, perspective quite large. And most people don't believe that will happen, and, and that's, if, if there was another currency that was utilized, obviously most people would believe it would be the RMB, the Chinese currency. And most people believe that's not an outcome anytime soon. That's probably a five, 10 year type of outcome. But does this all change the mix and the desire? And those are all the uncertainties. So we'll see how this all plays out. You have offices, I believe, in 70 countries. Are you changing the way you're operating your business now based on some of those trends that you just talked about? Actually, no, because we have been very purposeful in how we are building our businesses in every country we operate. And I've stated this in, some, in my CEO letters. At BlackRock, we have to be Mexican in Mexico. We have to be Chinese in China. We have to be Japanese in Japan. I'm taking my board to Japan. Uh, in, in 10 days, um, we have to prove our, that we can play a purpose in every country where we operate. We need to earn that license to operate in every country BlackRock operates. This is one of the reasons why when, when, in, in BlackRock CEO letter, I wrote about our three major priorities and our number one priority is retirement. We believe the retirement issue worldwide is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It's huge in, in China. If we could 
help and navigate the retirement issues in all the different communities we operate, then we can deserve, we, we will deserve that license. We could build a bigger practice and we could grow. I do believe there's growing consternation though in the world related to US companies. And that's just relative to where we were. I believe the US companies were always given the benefit of the doubt because we were the US. Mm. And that benefit of the doubt um, now is changing. And now, like every other company, every other country, every other individual, you have to prove your purpose. So it's less, that benefit of a doubt? Well, Or there's more questioning of it? You have to now, you don't have any benefit of the doubt. You have to prove that you are going to serve the country in which you operate. You have, what, $6.3 trillion uh, under management. Yes, yeah, but it's not our money. It's not your money, right? And that the individuals who are speaking, and the individuals right. are speaking about it, they right. don't realize that it. it is not yes. my money. I don't, you know, right. yeah. you know. Wish that it were. Yeah. Um, you have that six point. I would be here if right. Yeah. <laughs> Much as you like me, right? Six point three trillion dollars. Yeah. Um, the question is, how do you manage risk, and how do you produce excess returns? Well, the foundations of BlackRock has been on risk management. It is. It is on a percent, it's their fastest growing business, it's growing about 15% of risk management system that we offer to many clients uh, worldwide. Um, so risk is part of our culture. Um, it is something that's embedded in everything we do, having a, a good understanding of the risk that we're taking on behalf of our clients. Um, that doesn't mean we don't make mistakes, but hopefully we know why we make mistakes. Uh, but risk is something I think we um, assess uh, pretty well. And I think this is one of the foundations of why, you know, from a 30-year startup company, I mean, we were like a lot of startup companies that, that Yahoo and other organizations focus on. We were a startup company with eight people 30 years ago. Now who we are, who we are today. Um, it is because of that foundation of, of risk. And the question related to active management, can you make a, a active returns? Absolutely. Um, Actually, we're having a very good year in our active equities. Our model-based equities uh, th that uses algorithms and models, it's sixth consecutive year of great performance. Um, our fixed SIGM team continues to outperform. Um, and in, in many of our new alternatives, liquid and illiquid alternatives, we're doing pretty well. So um, that does not mean there's still more money focusing on index um, uh, products and ETFs. In your letters, uh, and just generally speaking, you've taken on a couple of issues in terms of governance, long-termism versus short-termism, and also uh, corporate social responsibility. <clears throat> Companies speaking to other constituencies than just their shareholders. And so let's take that second issue first, which is to say, um, companies having a responsibility to other constituencies besides their shareholders. I mean, we've seen companies like Nike perhaps taking some risks with Colin Kaepernick uh, in that ad campaign, and then also um, uh, Uber. And I know you're familiar with that with Dara Kososhrahi um, in terms of the new CEO coming on board and um, putting out an ad campaign. And maybe we can um, run a little bit of that clip from, uh, from sure. Uber. I'm Dara Kososhrahi, Uber's new CEO. Since joining nine months ago, my priority has been to listen to you to cities and communities, and to my own employees. I've seen a lot of good. We've changed the way people get around. We've provided new opportunities. But moving forward, it's time to move in a new direction. 
And I want you to know just how excited I am to write Uber's next chapter. So, Larry, is this the real deal? Or are we really seeing uh, something going on both with Uber and then sort of more broadly speaking in the corporate world? I think more and more leaders of companies and their boards are having a difficult time navigating social media. And the social media is playing such a bigger role um, and expo negative exposures have immediate results. And I believe for those companies who, who have transparency, who are open and strongly communicate their long-term strategy, who openly discusses how they believe they have a purpose and how they are building that purpose in the communities in which they operate, those companies have a better um, long-term history of, of producing financial returns, but more importantly, they're able to then withstand the impact of social media. Obviously, if it's too bad, then they're not living the purpose. I think what Dara's advertisement is showing that the leadership of Uber understand that if they're going to have a purpose in the cities and the countries in which they operate. And, and in Dara's ad, he talks about not just, he talks about his employees, we're going to serve our employees better. He talks about we're going to serve our clients better. And he also talks about the cities and where they operate. To me, that is basically living what <clears throat> my letter asks CEOs to do and, and, and boards. Uh, unquestionably, in this much more transparent world, companies have to connect more deeper with their employee base, especially now about almost as many as 35% of everybody's employee base are millennials today. And there is unquestionably millennials are asking more, asking more out of companies than maybe my generation did. Um, and they, more and more people around the world want to associate themselves with a brand that they believe in. And there's no question employees are more interested in working for organizations that they believe in especially now in a world where we have 4% unemployment, where there's many choices, more than ever before. Employees are seeking organizations that, where, <clears throat> where they believe in, you know, the company they believe in and the activities. So more than ever before, um, you know, I'm already beginning writing my 2019 letter and- Can you those, tell us what's in it? Uh, no, I'm not, not, you know, <laughs> not yet, but it's, I'll be mm -hmm. writing more about it today, later today. Um, but uh, unquestionably, we are seeing more and more companies write about their purpose. If you review most annual letters, there is a conversation by the CEO or chairman on their purpose. Unquestionably, more and more firms are, are now much more transparent about their long-term strategy and how they're going to navigate it. And as I said, I, from what we see, um, this is happening. It's, if, if anything, it's going to accelerate, just like we see ESG investing accelerating. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, that's another sign that there's something going on here. 
And in fact, just on ESG investing, I believe in the number ESG of years. ESG investing is. You know, in, you know, investing, impact investing, in, yeah. investing, uh, E is environmental, uh, S is social and, and governance. Right. Um, these are, it's, we believe every investor is going to have and need some type of analysis on these issues related to each and every company. Right now, it's not that where we are, but that's where we need to take it. Uh, next week at the UN, this is going to be a major component. Uh, there's a whole session on one planet. There's a whole session on the impact of ESG investing. And I could tell you worldwide, in parts of Europe, if you do not have an overlay of, of understanding every company on an ESG measurement, you know, you're not going to be able to invest as a fiduciary to your clients. That is not the case in the U.S. yet. We still have other issues around the Department of Labor. But, um, but I, I believe this movement is, is moving very fast. If anything, it's, it's accelerating. I mean, it's like getting back to your first question related to the stock market. It's very high, and yet surveys will show there's more distrust, there's more anxiety in America than we've seen in years. So whether it's anxiety because what we're reading in the newspapers every day, the political environment, um, or uh, people are just unsettled. And because of that unsettlement, this is why it's so important we, as, a, as leaders of companies, talk about who we are, how we're trying to drive our purpose, and importantly, how we are going to really earn the license to operate in the communities where we operate. All right. Larry, there's so much more to talk about, but unfortunately we are out of time. Right. And uh, I really appreciate you coming you, by everyone. here today. So please join me in thanking Larry Fink, the CEO of Blackbird.